Welcome to another episode of Preferred Walk-On PFF's College Football Show. I'm your host, Max Schauck, alongside my co-host, Dalton Wasserman, with our Week 4 Review episode. And folks, this was a loaded slate of college football that we knew going into it with six ranked games, not even including Florida State, Clemson. And Dalton, it lived up to the hype, man. It, it absolutely did. We got two absolute classics uh, at Clemson and in Notre Dame. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, all every ranked game was tight. They except for the Colorado Oregon game, uh, we got we got every bit the excitement we were expecting to get. And, and these games are going to have huge, huge ramifications come playoff time. Oh, absolutely. So you mentioned the one game where it was an absolute blowout. That's the one game we're going to talk about first, which is number ten Oregon destroying number nineteen Colorado, forty two. To six and Dalton, both of us picked Oregon in this game, but in a much, much closer game than this. What were your main takeaways from this curb stomping that, that Oregon put on Colorado? Um, it was the one huge advantage that Oregon had going into it in the trenches. O line and D line both just just dominated the game. Uh, Oregon ran for 240 yards. Uh, their pass protection graded an 89.2 and now leads the nation on the season with a 95.4 pass blocking grade. Uh, Nick's was great. Obviously Irving was great. The weapons, everything, but their offensive line just dominated this game. Colorado was not ready. They're not ready in the trenches talent wise to play a team like this. Um, there's, there's going to be other games where we see Colorado look better, you know, the Arizona States and, and the Stanford's of the world where, where athletically they're the better team, but Oregon is at least equal, if not better athletically. And there's so much better in the trenches that, um, this is where a lot of coaches and scouts and everybody who looked at this game said there's no way Colorado stands a chance because there's just such a stark difference in the trenches on both sides. Oh, massive one. I mean, not only on offensively, you saw right there. I mean, I mean, Oregon in this game averaged 3.1 yards before contact per attempt, which you, is insane. And obviously you see right there, 6.8 yards per carry. Other side of the ball, Dalton, they got eight sacks on Shador Sanders as well. Shador is basically by himself on that Colorado offense. And listen, the Buffaloes, they're just not there yet in the trenches. Dion said it before, they're six to eight guys away from being a legit team. And I think all eight of those guys are trench players, honestly, because they are just not there yet in the trenches. And this is why we 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 knew this going in that, hey, this could be a mismatch, and it absolutely was. I don't think you should overreact too much to this one. I still think Colorado has enough skill position players, enough talent at the skill positions to compete with other less physical teams, like we'll get into in our preview episode probably uh, in a couple days. But I also think Oregon, you know, is a really good team, man. This is a top 10 team for sure, playoff contender for sure. Uh, they're really firing on all cylinders right now on offense. And then that's not even uh, mentioning Dan Lanning, the head coach, who is one of the best defensive minds in the sport, in my opinion. But speaking of Dan Lanning, Dalton, quickly before we move on to the next game, uh, what were your thoughts on his pregame speech? Obviously, he said, quote, they're fighting for clicks. We're fighting for wins. What, what were your thoughts on Lanning's pregame speech, taking some uh, some shots at the Buffaloes? Um, I, I mean, I think every team's fighting for wins. You don't you don't see teams going out there fighting for views or clicks or anything like that. But every coach has the they have that pregame speech every week. I mean, I've you know we've all been in those locker rooms, and it's just one of those things where they're gonna say they're gonna say what it takes that day, <laughs> whether it's true yeah. or not. It is it's it's motivating if that's what he felt you know needed to go to his players at that time. You know, but I have no issues with it. Um, there was there was some people talking this even this morning on TV and stuff about controversy and what's really behind it and this is nothing it's a guy making a pregame speech and he makes one something similar to that every week and this one was just against you know it was on the biggest stage against coach prime in colorado and all that all the hype going into it uh this i I don't think too much of it i'm i'm sure he makes some sort of speech like that every coach makes some sort of speech like that every week I, i wouldn't I don't take much stock in it, to be honest with you. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the way you fire your guys up, honestly. It's a you versus them war mentality. So you say anything to fire your guys up. Uh, so I have no issue with it on landing side. But I will say one thing. Deion Sanders wins because of clicks. That's exactly how this program was able to turn around from a 1-11 team last year to a nationally relevant one. They, every single game Colorado's played this year has been on national TV. They had college game day going to Colorado, Colorado State, when last year that would have been one of the worst games of the whole season between those two teams. They had 9.3 million viewers in that game. Colorado has put on a masterclass in marketing 
since Deion Sanders was hired. And you should when Deion Sanders is, in my opinion, the most charismatic coach in college football right now. And with all those eyeballs that is on the program right now, there are a lot of talented players, like you've already seen, that want to transfer into Colorado, that want to commit to Colorado coming out of high school. I mean, he he convinced Travis Hunter to go to an FCS school out of high school when Travis Hunter was a number two player in the country coming out of high school. You've never seen that before, and it's because of Deion Sanders. So I will say, yes, they're not a top 10 team, uh, and they prove that they're not even close to a top 10 team right now. But the way this program is relevant is because of clicks and because of Deion Sanders taking advantage uh, of all the marketing that Colorado is doing right now. So, yes, it is a shot at Colorado, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, they're fighting for clicks because that's the only way they can convince good players to go to the program. You're not going to commit to Colorado because of their football. Like, they're not going to out-football you. What, they're, what they are going to do is out-market you and get good players that way. So, I, I, I think, you know... The whole clicks thing and people taking shots at Colorado for that is like, dude, that is literally how they win right now. That's the only way they can win for now until they start getting some really good players in there. And so. that's and that's how that's how recruiting just works. Honestly, yeah. that's how every team wins. They, their coaches are all every coach is on Twitter. Every every kid gets to visit on campus and the stadium and the locker rooms and all that. Uh, it you know the coaches take helicopters to the high school fields now nowadays. Saban takes helicopters to high school fields. Everybody's getting clicks. It's what it's publicity. It's marketing. That's like half the battle of recruiting half of it nowadays is getting talent and the other half is just convincing them to go to your school mm-hmm. through other you know through other manners uh, you know, it's just it's every school does it and and Dion's just done it at an accelerated rate because he's Dion Sanders and I yeah. I can't blame him one bit for that I was, if I was Dion Sanders I would do it too it's just every school does it and and to, I I think to take it like Colorado does it more than anybody else is nonsense yeah, absolutely. I think it's ironic too that he says they're fighting for clicks when like that Dan Lanning video is one of the most viral videos right now in college football, which is pretty right. funny. But yeah, listen, man, like I said, Colorado, they can't out football you right now. What they can do is convince really talented players to come in so they can eventually out football you. But yeah, I have no issue with the way Dion is running his program right now. And they're just not close to uh, to what Oregon is, which is fine because they weren't close last year. 10 of their 11 losses last year were blowout losses. So this is their first one this year and everyone's clowning them but the fact that we're even clowning Colorado when last year they get blown out of the water and you say okay let's just Colorado football this year it's relevant this is why we're leading the show with this guys so uh you need to remind yourself of where this program was last year which was a dumpster fire this year they're on national tv every single week and they're a relevant program which is a miracle, basically. But we're moving on to uh, to another game. This one was not a blowout, Dalton. In fact, this game was an instant classic, man. Number six, Ohio State, beating number nine, Notre Dame, in South Bend, 17-14. to 14. What were your main takeaways from this amazing game, Dalton? Um, the more I looked at this and the more I thought about it and watching it live and then watching a good chunk of it over again and seeing all the metrics, um, the better team did not win this game. Notre Dame was better offensively. Their offensive grade was roughly 14 points higher. Their defensive grade was about eight and a half points higher. Ohio State's pass protection grade was hovering around a 30. Uh, Notre Dame had the ball for 35 minutes. The better team did not win this game. Um, Notre Dame just blew it situationally. The last three minutes, they really botched it. Um, they, you know, they made the stop with about four minutes left, got the ball at their own 10. And the sequence of play calling, they got two first downs. They got one on a one on a throw to the sideline, and then they got one running right up the middle. And really the goal beyond that with about two and a half to go should have been just make Ohio State use all their timeouts. You know, if we can get a first down, cool. It's that classic two and a half minutes with the ball in a lead situation, right? Make I think Ohio State had two timeouts remaining. You know, ran the ball. They didn't run the ball straight ahead on first down. All right, they tried to run like a misdirection counter and it got blown up. So now you're second and 15. Now it's second and 15. The only goal should be to make Ohio State use all their timeouts. So Ohio State uses one. They have, actually, I think they might have had all three and only had to use two. They use one on that play. The next play, they call a screen that gets batted down. And I, I have no idea why they're calling that. Look, at second and 15, your odds of getting a first down anyway, even if you're throwing are low. Now you're in a spot where you should just kill their timeouts and make McCord go 90 yards. Well, they they blew it with the screen pass, and then they come back on third and 15 and run it right up the middle for nothing. And Ohio State, that timeout saved the game for Ohio State when McCord had the intentional grounding mm-hmm. down in the down in the 19 or wherever that was. 
they had they burned the timeout, you would have had a 10 second runoff and essentially about a 20 to 22 yard hail mary with five seconds left. Yep. That those usually run incomplete. So that timeout saved Ohio State the game with the intentional grounding. And then defensively, the last two plays only have 10 guys on the field. There's just no excuse for it. And Notre Dame with a timeout in their pocket. Look, I get what Freeman's saying. You know, the first time he knew it. And then the second time he knew it again and had a choice between calling a timeout and or just leaving him out there. And Ohio State, you know, with this idea that they have to rush a play call. Look, play clock's 40 seconds regardless. They don't have to rush a play call. If they understand, if they see there's 10 guys on the field and they want to run up the middle because that's deep, what one defensive lineman is the guy missing, they're going to do it. So you might as well call a timeout and play 11 on 11. There's no scenario to me where you should be content with playing 11 on 10. And that's what they did. He said, he even said he was aware of it and he didn't call the timeout because he didn't want Ohio State to set something up. Look, they're at the one yard line. They're set up. Doesn't matter. They're at the one. So to play it a man short, it's situational. Notre Dame was the better team in this game, especially for the first 58 minutes. Yeah. And they just, they just didn't finish. And Ohio State, I was talking to you before the show, they ran the same play four times on the last drive. Basically four verts and twice it was like a little bit of modification on the outside curls instead of goes. But essentially the same play four times on the last drive. And it worked the two biggest plays of the game. It worked twice to Abuka, including the play down to the one-yard line. Um, two balls up the seam made the difference in this game. And then the rest was just Notre Dame botching it. I mean, even even on the ground – Travion Henderson had his 161-yard touchdown. The rest of the game, they only had 65 yards on the ground. Notre Dame did everything they wanted to in this game except finish. Finish drives and finish the game. And and if I were a Notre Dame fan or somebody associated, I mean, I, I would be sick to my stomach because the, the better team did lose this game. Oh, 1,000%. I'm glad you mentioned the offensive play calling on that drive before Ohio State got the ball because that was something I was going to bring up. But, again, man, going back to the 10 guys on the field, inexcusable, inexcusable. And not to mention, on that game-deciding touchdown with three seconds left, Notre Dame's missing defender was that Viper defensive end that would have been lining up exactly where Ohio State was running the ball. And not only that, Ohio State barely got over the goal line on that play. So, By transitive property, you could probably say, hey, yeah, that one defender lining up exactly where they were running the football, the guy got inches over the goal line originally. You could make the argument they're going to stop him there if they had an extra defender on the field, man. So inexcusable by Marcus Freeman to to not have 11 guys on the field on two of the most critical plays of the game, man. It was was awful. But uh, other thing I want to say for Ohio State that they did a really good job of in this game, and I agree with you that Notre Dame was a better team in this game, but we did mention one of the keys to this game for Ohio State was to get pressure on Sam Hartman. They did exactly that in this game. 46.2% pressure rate on the night. Hartman with a 51.2 grade under pressure. We mentioned last week how he had a 44 grade under pressure on the season, 51.2 in that game. So, yeah, you you get him under pressure, and he's not nearly as good as he was. But uh, we mentioned the Ohio State offensive line, too, how they played great so far this season. They did not play good in this game, and I think this is a, it's an issue for Ohio State going forward, man. 38% pressure rate allowed. Uh, the center, Carson Hinsman, had nine pressures allowed. Now, I will say for Carson on his behalf, Notre Dame has two superstar yeah. defensive tackles and, and Howard Cross third, Riley Mills. In fact, two of, both of them are among the top three highest-graded defensive tackles in the country right now. So uh, it was a difficult assignment for him, but he didn't do him, himself any favors, man. Nine pressures allowed in that game. But uh, yeah, overall, that, that Ohio State offensive line, both offensive lines really, really struggled in this game. Uh, but one quarterback that we have to talk about, Dalton, because we talked about him last week and how we just didn't really know what we're getting in Kyle McCord. What were your takeaways from his performance against the Fighting Irish? Gutsy. Gutsy is the word. I mean, given a chance to win the game and he executed, look, it's not pretty right now. And we've known this for three weeks before this already. Uh, he's another one. If he's clean, he's good. If he's pressured, he doesn't really move. Hartman can move a little more than him. Um, McCord's got all the size and arm strength in the world, but he doesn't move much. But when it came down to making winning plays, um, you know, even late, a couple of mistakes, turnover worthy play over the middle, intentional grounding that really could have hurt him, but he made big throws when he needed to Four 
I believe it was four big time throws, three of them in the fourth quarter. So mm-hmm. just gutsy. I mean, he, he was just what you needed to win a game like that. That game was, I mean, for Ohio State, that game was sheer willpower and just executing in the right moments. And that's what McCord did. And look, am I going to sit here and say he's good enough to go to go in and beat Michigan yet? No, there's a ton of improvement, a ton of improvement that needs to be made. But I think in his first big start, you know, we talked about the first three weeks soft competition. In his yeah. first big start, behind with 90 seconds left, with one timeout, and even third and third and 17 or third and 19, whatever that was down and to make the two big throws to Ibuka and just keep them in it and make winning plays. Uh, I, I thought it was a really gutsy performance from McCord. And I think something that could really calm the nerves for him going forward. I mean, there's still tough games, right? Penn state, Michigan, you know, they, it's not going to be a cakewalk. And these are the types of games they're going to have to win defense. Travion Henderson with the big run, Get the ball to Harrison and Ibuka. And I thought Stover, I thought Cade Stover was spectacular in this yeah, game. Yeah, he was too. fantastic. Um, it, it was gritty. And I think McCord was every bit gritty with it. At, there was multiple, multiple moments at any point in this game he could have folded, and he never did. And I think he should he deserves as much credit for this win as every other guy on that team. Oh, absolutely. I, I think that's a great word that you use because he wasn't spectacular. He had a 72.2 passing grade, but he was gutsy, man. And this is a really good Notre Dame defense that he had uh, that he was facing in this game. 72.2 passing grade, like I said. He had four big-time throws in this game, and we mentioned it last week. He entered the week with four big-time throws. He had four big-time throws in the first three games of the season with four turnover-worthy plays. He had four big-time throws alone in this game. Like I mentioned, three of them came in the fourth quarter. Again, consistency, not all the way there. You see there, right there, uh, 54% completion rate, 68% adjusted completion rate, which includes drops as basically catches in there. Um, That's not great. But, like you said, in the fourth quarter, when it mattered, he showed up for the the Ohio State Buckeyes. So, yes, very, very gutsy performance for him down the stretch of that game. Uh, Another gutsy performance by a quarterback in this game, Dalton, is number four Florida State taking down Clemson 31-24 in overtime. We mentioned before how Clemson's a bad matchup for Florida State, and Dalton, they took him down on the wire in this one. They sure were. They proved to be every bit as you know, every bit as bad a matchup as possible. Uh, you know, Clemson ran the ball reasonably well, although Florida State graded higher than they would somewhere around an 83, 83.7 run D grade. Uh, I thought it would be lower than that considering the, the amount of yards they gave up, but they didn't give up too many explosive runs. Florida State couldn't run the ball at all. I believe it was under 40 yards rushing. I got 16 design carries for 28 yards for Florida State. It was just non-existent. This was a game... And if there was ever a game they needed it, and if there was a, if there was a Heisman moment, if he's in the race, Jordan Travis willed them to a win in this game. He yep. just did. Even schematically, by the last about eight to ten minutes in the fourth quarter and overtime, Florida State looked like just ran out of ideas. It was just we just need Travis and Coleman and Wilson to be better. I mean, Coleman on that last on the winning touchdown, just an incredible catch, an incredible throw. Uh, they Florida State just relied on their best players. And in moments like that and games like that, that's just what you do. But Jordan Travis, you know, when he wasn't pressured, 89.4 grade in a clean pocket, four big time throws all in the second half. He just willed them to a win. And and the other one too, you know, Kalen Deloach with the strip sack and the fumble recovery and the touchdown. If Florida State were to make the playoff run the table or even make it with one loss or what that's the play of their season yeah that's the play of the year they were down seven clemson was driving to really take control of the game florida state if they went down 14 certainly maybe even 10 against that defense the way they were playing florida state was not going to come back from Mm -hmm. down 14 and clemson was rolling at that point that's the play of their season if they make the playoff but this that play and Jordan Travis, that, that's really the story was much like McCord, but I think to a greater extent, Jordan Travis just willed them to a win in this game. He did. And their defense stepped up just in the moments when they needed him to. Um, and as far as Clemson goes, I think Cade Klubnick, that was probably as good as he's played in the four games we've seen this year. And he's just not quite it's still their passing offense is just not quite ready for that moment. Yeah. I, I think next year next year you might see a different game but also next year the game will be at Florida State so it's it's um 
Clemson missed some opportunities, but I think, you know, you got the missed field goal at the end of the fourth quarter. That's tough, too. That's really tough with the story, with the backdrop there, with the kicker. But it's just one of those things where you – Travis just willed him. He just willed him to it, and it really – um, more power to him. If he if he's in this Heisman race, um, you're going to see that be the moment. Oh, definitely. And, you know, I mentioned this before uh, on Twitter, but every championship team, it seems like they have some luck along the way. This was that lucky game for Florida State. I truly think Clemson lost this game more than anything, man. I mean, you mentioned that Kalen Deloach fumble, uh, force fumble, a great play by him. Don't get me wrong, but that's a huge, huge play um, that swit that really changed the momentum of this game. And then not only that, uh, Clemson had a 29-yard field goal to take the lead in the game with a minute 47 left, and Jonathan White's missed it. And this is a kicker that really was added off the street basically by Dabas when he used to be a backup kicker for Clemson. Then he called it quits, was taking his master's degree online in Charleston, and Dabo called him up once they were having kicking struggles and said, hey, can you come in here and, and play for us this week? So it, he really didn't have much time to get ready for it, and he missed a 29-yard kick um, to take the lead in this game when ultimately he could have won the game for Clemson. And then the other thing I want to say about Clemson losing this game, their play calling, man. I love what Garrett Riley was doing in the first half, especially with all those throws over the middle. They were really exposing Florida State there. Down the stretch, though, that play calling was insane, man. Especially in the in overtime, you got third and one from the 16-yard line. Florida State already scored their touchdown, so you have to match them and score a touchdown. Third and one from the 16. You're averaging five yards per carry in the game, and you throw two passes from Kate Klubnik on third and one from the 16, and then fourth and one from the 16. Both of them fell incomplete. I thought that was crazy, man, with how well you're running that football. I mean, yes, Florida State's run defense grade was pretty good, but like you said, it's more because they didn't allow too many explosive runs. But you're averaging five yards per carry. You're telling me Will Shipley can't get you one yard on that? So I thought Clemson's play calling on in overtime was insane. But you mentioned uh, Jordan Travis, who I picked to win the Heisman before the season. We have an interview with him. You can check out as well. Um, 79.1 grade in this game. Not to mention, he was dealing with injuries the entire game as well. He had an injury to his non-throwing shoulder. He had an injury to his hand, his throwing hand as well. And he still was gutsy in this game like Kyle McCord, man. And listen, Florida State now, they're in the driver's seat for the college football playoff right now, man. They play number 17, Duke, number 18, Miami, and number 22, Florida. That's all they've got in terms of ranked opponents for the rest of the season. So unless they really screw up like they did with the Boston College game, they really have a, have a clear path now to getting to 12-0 and and making it to the ACC championship game. And like we mentioned, Clemson, out of all the ACC schools, yes, they are 2-2. Two and two. Clemson's the best matchup for them in the ACC, uh, I think, in both of our opinions. So, yeah, man, it's going to be uh, – I think they are firmly in the driver's seat now for the playoff, and now it's just about not screwing up for the, uh, for the Seminoles. Yeah, they uh, – well, I think, I think that's going to – that might be a harder road than you think. I'll tell you, Duke's playing really well, especially, yeah. especially on defense. Um, but luckily, they get the game at home. Miami, Tyler Van Dyke's the highest graded passer in the country right now. So Miami, you could see that as a shootout. And Florida plays kind of a similar style to Clemson that that could give them a lot of issues. Look, Florida State, anytime, anytime, because it's so rare, anytime you come out of Clemson with a win is a big win and you just say, okay, we survived. We're good. Cool. Just, the, I think it's great for Florida State to have a bye week this coming week. Yeah. They do need to get better. If they play the way they've played the last two weeks on the whole, they will not make the playoff. Yeah, they won't. They need to improve as the season goes on. Um, the Syracuse game, Syracuse is undefeated. That's going to be a fun one. Duke is physical, man. Their defense, their secondary, they can really play. They can cause Florida State some issues on the back end. Florida State needs to find balance. They need to find run game. They need to find run defense. I'm not saying they have to be elite. They don't. You know, I know they're not going to be an elite run defense. We've seen that. We've already seen it through four games. But they need to be better. If they... If four weeks from now, Florida State is the same team they are, or they, or they were, I should say, on Saturday, the last two Saturdays, they, they won't make the playoff. They may not win the conference. They, knew, they do need to continue to improve because it's it's been shaky. Now, I give them a pass for Clemson. You win at Clemson, whatever. You're good. That's fine. You know, however you need to win, overtime, miss field goals, willpower, best players. And I think that's all it comes down to and is, a, is in a big moment. Florida State relied on their best players. And you mentioned at the end of third and one, the fourth and one, 
Shipley and Mafa are clearly Clemson's best players offensively. Put the game in their hands and honestly, just drag it out. Continue to drag it out and throw punches. But, you know, one team relied on their best players. The other didn't. Florida State is just going to have to continue to improve. Right now, are they rightfully the number four team in the country? Are they still number four in the AP Five now. Five, Five now? I mean, you look at the way they've played the last two weeks and it's hard to argue. You know, they, they have to continue to get better. They may have to run the table, even even with the ACC being better than it's been the last couple of years, a little more depth. But look, Duke is going to be a tough game. Miami's going to be a tough game. Florida's going to be a tough game. Now, I don't think Florida is better than Florida State, but it's a bad matchup again. Run the ball. Yep. Solid secondary. It, it, the same thing as Clemson. And Duke, for that matter. I mean, it's it's going to be a tough road, and they have to get better. If they're, if they're the same team two weeks from now that they've been the last two weeks, you might see the cracks really start showing. Yeah, for sure. So next game that we're talking about, though, is uh, number 13 Alabama beating number 15 Ole Miss 24-10 to in this one. And, and Dalton, credit where credit is due, man. The Alabama offense showed up pretty well in this game. They did. Um, they, they Well, they're starting the right quarterback, right? Jalen Monroe <laughs> is clearly the best quarterback of the bunch. You know, the two things we talked about last week in the preview, passing and pass protecting. Mm-hmm. Those two things were spectacular in this game. Milrow, an 82.4 grade, six explosive passes, two more explosive runs for him, one on a scramble. He's just, if you're, again, if you have a quarterback problem, just play the best athlete and let him do what he does, Right. He he just he makes big plays. It, it might be few and far between. Might take some patience. You know, he might make some bad throws in between. But the expo- he's their most explosive player right now. I mean, mm-hmm. McClellan's really good. He gets the gritty yards. He had another hundred yard day. But Milrow has to be the guy. He just he just does. He brings a level of athleticism with the arm strength and and the feet. Where he he could look. He uh, he's a sixty yard touchdown waiting to happen. I think it's very very much like Anthony Richardson. I do. I, I just think he gives them the best chance, and that's been made clear now. Without, really, could have saved the embarrassment versus USF, but it's very clear now. You just beat probably the third best team in the SEC West handily for the most part, especially in the second half. Run the ball, defense, play action, occasional explosive play, and I'll give credit to their offensive line too—an eighty-four point three pass blocking grade. Um, that, that's far exceeding what I was expecting. Honestly, it's as good as they've been in a while. I don't really understand what Ole Miss was doing because they only brought five rushers four times the entire game. I don't understand that at all. Um, and on those on those four times on those four plays, they got a sack, a hit, and another pass rush win. So uh, Ole Miss came in to me with the wrong plan up front. You know, Milrow wants to hold the ball forever and, and wreak havoc late in the play. Go get him. I have no idea what Ole Miss was looking at going into this going into this game plan for Bama's offensive line. But credit to Alabama, you know, all those times with four or less rushers on the plays with four pass rushers or less, pass blocking grade was above a 92. So they can block four guys. Why keep sending only four? I, I'm I'm not really getting what Ole Miss was doing, but credit to Alabama. Three things dominated this game. Milrow with the explosives. Their pass protection was way, way, way better, miles better than we've seen the first three games. And their secondary, uh, they're the highest-graded coverage unit in the country now. Alabama's secondary is nasty. They didn't give up a deep ball all day. They, you know, the combination of McKinstry and Moore and Arnold and Downs and all these guys, they only allowed into their coverage when any of the corners or safeties were in the primary coverage, only allowed a 54.1 passer rating. Um they're, they're secondary. Good luck getting over the top on them. I think right now for what they're trying to do, it's a perfect complement to Milrow and to the running game and keeping everything in the box right now. If they're don't get, if they not going to make a ton of big plays and be real efficient offensively, well, don't give any up either. And I think they're starting – maybe, just maybe, Alabama's figuring out the right style of ball they need to be playing to win games, especially with Milrow at quarterback. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned it. I mean, credit where credit's due, man. That that Alabama offense really stepped up. Milrell played really well. You saw the numbers right there. The offensive line, 14% pressure rate allowed in this game. They entered the game with a 38% pressure rate allowed, which was the third worst 
in the power five. So offensive line really set up. But I, I do agree with you, man. Pete Golding, who, by the way, last year was Alabama's defensive coordinator. Now he's Ole Miss's defensive coordinator. I don't know what he was doing, man. Maybe he had some uh, some love there for Nick Saban and said, okay, I'm not going to try to expose you too much in this game. I don't know what it was, man. But like you mentioned, they did not send the house. We mentioned it last week how bad Alabama's O-line is when you send five or more rushers. And Ole Miss only doing that four times in this game is, is awful, man. That's yeah. that's The book is out on Alabama's O-line, and Ole Miss just did not read it, apparently. So, uh, yeah, Alabama's offense played well. Ole Miss's scheme wasn't great either, but you play with who you got, man, and Alabama's offense did very, very well with what they had. So I was I was happy to see that for, for Jalen Moreau and for that offense to finally get something going. Um, listen, Moreau's still a roller coaster. I mean, he had one turnover-worthy play, which is better than what he's done recently, but that one turnover-worthy play was still bad, man. It was that pick in the end zone that was a terrible decision by him, throwing in double coverage. Um, but again, he, he's a roller coaster. The highs are high with him. The highs are very high. The lows are very low. But those highs, you can't find anywhere else in this quarterback room right now. So he is the right quarterback to play for the rest of the season. I think today that game proved that. Uh, and Alabama's defense, man, they stood tall. Quinshawn Judkins, the, the star running back for Ole Miss, 56 yards on 13 carries. Jackson Dart, 67.9 passing grade in this one. This is how Alabama wins. This is the way Alabama wins. Outstanding defense, like you mentioned, that coverage unit, and an offense that can do just enough. And I don't even think Alabama's run game was that great in this one. Milrow made the passes when he needed to. Uh, Very encouraging bounce back for the Crimson Tide. Very, very encouraging. Uh, Next game that we're talking about with Dalton is one of the two Pac-12 games that uh, we have to talk about, which is number 11 Utah beating number 22 UCLA. In an ugly one, man, 14-7. to What were your main takeaways from this one? Well, there's a clear lesson here, and that's if you go play Utah at Utah, do not give up a touchdown on the first play of the game. Yeah. <laughs> we've, seen this, we've seen this twice already. If you go in there and you go down 7 nothing a minute into the game, yep. you're probably going to lose because that's a defense you don't want to fall behind. Now, this game was pretty much, as advertised, just a slugfest. Yeah. And these two defenses, UCLA – you know, both teams on defense only gave up seven points. UCLA is still the highest graded defense in the country. Utah just got the lead with the pick six and sat on the ball all day. I mean, there really wasn't, and especially once you go up 14 at the half, this Utah team, their defense is elite. Yeah. Um, I, I think I think it's graded somewhere in the top 20-ish or 25-ish, but, you know, the eye test kind of it, it feels like they're really one of the top six or seven units in the country. They got guys front to back who can make plays. They, they, you know, and they still struggle a little bit with the deep ball. Uh, Dante Moore still had six big time throws in this game. They were bailed out. They had five drops officially and two more. UCLA had five drops and two more negated by penalties or something, something along those lines. Really, seven in total. Um, they there was a huge drop late in the first quarter. Um, who was it? It was Josiah Norwood dropped up the ball up the seam that would have tied the game late in the first quarter that, I mean, would have turned the game around. UCLA, I mean, the combination of great defense by Utah and just UCLA making mistakes, it was rough. You you can't – that's the one clear thing you can't do against Utah. You just can't beat yourself. Um, their offense, it, there's going to come a point where unless they get rising back and he looks like he's 100%, this offense is going to break at some point because you're only throwing for 117 yards, I believe it was, they weren't running that effect. They were really just killing the clock and letting UCLA beat themselves, um, mm-hmm. and they did. You know, especially right from the first play of the game. Um, Moore, Moore has a lot of polish he needs to put on, especially in the in the short and intermediate game. Uh, again, to come away with six big time throws and only seven seven points speaks to how much he needs to work on fundamentally. And he, like you you talked about it last week, is his first real test, and yeah. Utah's a rough rough first test. Um, they didn't run the ball well. The pick six killed them. It just set the tone for the entire game, and everything fell right into Utah's hands. But uh, UCLA, they're they're going to be better as they go. That's a rough first road conference game to have to deal with. Um, I think fundamentally they're just going to get better. They're still a good team. And Utah, I mean, we got to start talking about how good this defense is because they defensively, and we saw them beat USC twice last year. They can play with anybody, anybody. I, I, I just, I do question a little bit if they're going now this week might be the exception scoring only seven on UCLA. 
UCLA is a great defense too. We're going to see in the near future if Utah's offense is up to the task with their defense. But the lesson here is don't go into Utah and fall behind early. Don't do it because you're you're just you're just going to be done. Absolutely, man. And my main takeaway from this was if Utah doesn't have the best coaching staff in the country, it is damn close, man. Because what they've done through these four weeks, we met, we actually interviewed Kyle Whittingham, which you could check out in a video as well. Utah right now, 4-0, you see right there, which is the first time since, I believe, 2017 that they uh, are 4-0. Yeah, 2017, they beat number 22 Florida, who's currently number 22, by the way, uh, Baylor, at Baylor, Weber State, obviously a cupcake. And then you beat number 22 UCLA, who was number 22 at the time, all without your two best players in Cam Rising and Brant Keithy on offense. This offense has been not great at all to start the season. In fact, it's been pretty bad. Uh, but the defense, like you mentioned, has stepped up, man. And the fact that this team is 4-0 without their two, not only their two best players on offense, their two leaders on offense. These are veteran players on that offense. That should scare a lot of teams for when they finally get healthy. And Cam Rising was practicing in full last week. So they got a big game this Friday night that we're going to preview against Oregon State. Cam Rising hopefully should be back for that one if he was practicing fully last week and just barely missed out on playing this game, I I believe. Um, But yeah, man, I mean, listen, Utah uh, shut down UCLA's ground game. Carson Steele, a running back that we both really like, only 2.7 yards per carry for the Bruins in that one. Um, It should be, watch out, man. Watch out for the Utes right now. And don't forget, this is a team that won the last two Pac-12 championships. So this isn't just a Utah team coming out of nowhere. They won the last two Pac-12 titles, and they're kind of always the forgotten brother in the Pac-12 right now when you have you know electric teams like Oregon and USC yeah. and Washington Utah is always the forgotten one and they're the reigning back-to-back champs in the conference right now uh, I wanted to talk about Dante Moore though a little bit you know you mentioned it before six big time throws uh, most in the country on the week for for our quarterbacks also three turnover worthy plays though and you mentioned that pick six not a great decision on the first play he was let down in this game by the rest of his offense though he was under pressure on 41 percent of his drop backs he almost had no time to throw back there with a struggling ucla offensive line that we mentioned last week again five drop passes uh tied for fourth most among all quarterbacks not great he didn't play great he had like a 56 passing grade i believe in this game but he didn't really get, get much of a chance in this one either with the way his offensive line was playing, with the way his receivers were dropping passes as well. So not a great performance from the true freshman, but I am still very, very high on him. And he showed some special, special plays in this game. Just, you know, some not great plays either. So um, not a terrific performance from Dante Moore, but I don't think he was the reason that they lost this game either. I think the rest of the offense really let him down uh, in this one. But he he, he kept them he he kept them in it. Um, and and there's a boatload of talent there. I, I think as a whole, him included. Now, even even to be honest with you, that first play call that led to the pick six, I didn't love that. That's really not what UCLA does. They called kind of quick game double slants to that side. Yeah. UCLA runs the ball and they take action shots. They don't really. They have a lot of work to do in the conventional passing game. On all fronts, Moore and the offensive line and the receivers just dropping seven balls on the day. It's just not you're not going to win games like that, right? I didn't love the play call. It doesn't suit his skill set. He throws the ball over the top. He throws it vertically, right? They're going to look better in future weeks, no question. But they need to get back to their identity. The real, the real part of it was you fall behind. You feel like you can't run the ball. Then you try to run the ball, and you really can't run the ball. They, they have a certain way they're going to win, and – dropping back conventionally and throwing the football right now is not the way they're going to do it. It's not that he's incapable of it. He's only, is he a true freshman? He's only, he's only a freshman. So it'll get there. It's going to get there for UCLA and more. And the high end is all there. They just, they have to work on situation those conventional things. I mean, look, eventually they'll be able to throw quick passes on first down, move the chains, that sort of thing, but they're not a quick passing, move the chains kind of team. They're going to run and run and run and take shots over the top. If he has time in the pocket, he's going to throw the ball vertically. And he throws he throws as well as anybody in the country. He does. He has as much talent as any quarterback in the country. It, it's, a, it's a process. And I think that's all we learned this week for UCLA. One, their defense is still spectacular. That's, that's not a question. And offensively, it's just going to be a process. They're probably still going to win nine, possibly even ten games, depending on their schedule. Probably not. They're probably still a nine-win team. But it's just a work in progress. You have a freshman quarterback and a not great team in pass protection. This is what it's going to look like some days. And and on Utah, nobody, nobody else in the Pac-12 plays the style of football they do. 
Nobody. Yeah. The closest team is probably Oregon State, and offensively, they don't they don't really do the same things Utah does. Um, it, it's Utah's a problem for any team in that conference. This the difference in style. They're a Big Ten team playing in the Pac-12 is what they are, and. They're, they're, look, you mentioned it, Oregon and Washington and USC. These teams don't play like that. It's why they cause them issues. If you fall any any team they play, if you fall into Utah's style of play, you got a problem. And USC, you saw USC. It happened to them twice last year. They couldn't even adjust the second time. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they get Rising and Keithy back and they get the run game going and and everything, and I would even mind seeing Nate Johnson in some in some packages, yeah. some Wildcats kind of. He's a terrific athlete. It's just the accuracy is not there to be a starting quarterback yet, but he still needs to be a part of the offense, I think. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it was a great, great showing from Utah. They're a top 10 team in the country right now, and they definitely deserve to be in the top 10 as well. So we mentioned we already talked about two Pac-12 games. We haven't talked about, Dalton, the Pac-2 championship, which was between number 21 Washington State taking down number 14 Oregon State, 38-35. to And Dalton, Cam Ward, Washington State's quarterback, he was sensational in this game. He sure was. I mean, the first two weeks, it was really about learning the offense, short balls, Lincoln Victor, throwing balls in the slot, playing conventional, run it, get first downs, play defense. All of a sudden, the last two weeks, they're they're as vertical as any team in the country, especially in this game. I mean, and Victor Victor got hurt early in the game, yeah. so they really had to get away from just throwing slants in the slot and whip routes and things like that, all the like Julian Edelman type stuff. All of a sudden, Josh Kelly and Kyle Williams – are vertically they're, they're freaks i mean somebody <laughs> needs to check josh kelly's left hand for stickum first of all because i mean he makes two just absolutely gross one-handed catches one early in the game the second one late for a touchdown and kyle williams got speed for days man i mean these this group of receivers if they get lincoln victor back healthy if there's nothing major with him this is a problem i mean they're They've looked the last two weeks as explosive as as any of those other teams we just mentioned in the Pac-12. I mean, the question will be is if their offensive line holds up yeah, because they're not quite as good, certainly not as good as Oregon or Washington. Those might be the two best O-lines in the country. But if they can hold up in the trenches, their defense wasn't great in this game. It's been better in past weeks. We mentioned it was great against Wisconsin. But I think their defense can keep them in games. And Oregon State's a weird matchup. Uh, we mentioned they get under center, they get in the eye, they run it down their throat. I still I think they still almost ran for 300 yards in this game. Um, but that, other than maybe Oregon, Oregon's physical too, but Oregon State is the most downhill physical team you're going to play offensively in that conference. You know, their offensive line, Sean Fenwick was spectacular, 110 and three touchdowns. But yeah, this team, Cam Ward, if he's going to throw the ball like that, basically across the board, he was the top three quarterback in the country this week and over the last two weeks. Um, if, they, if they're if they going to be this explosive and then if Victor can get back healthy and they have all three of those guys, you've got, you've got some absolute dogs at receiver, man. Kelly can snap off routes. He, the hands are crazy. Williams can get vertical in a heartbeat. He can run right by you. I mean, there was – there was, I think it was a long post for a touchdown where Oregon State was playing 12 yards off him, and he just ran right by them. And and then Victor, I, I told you last week, Victor reminds me a lot of like a Sky Moore type of like slot. Mm-hmm. Just nasty. They got some nasty route runners on this team, man. I mean, they, they just, they're a problem. If Ward is protected, they're going to be a real problem for some of these other teams in the Pac-12 because they can score. I, I, looking like they've looked the last two weeks, they can score with anybody. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Cam Ward, sensational, man. 92.4 grade, four big-time throws, 12 yards per attempt as well. They were taking shots downfield, and it was working, man. Like you mentioned, without their star receiver and Lincoln Victor, I mean, Josh Kelly, breakout game for him. He had a 92.4 receiving grade, second behind Luther Burden the third, who we talked about extensively a couple weeks ago. Um, he might be already one of the best receivers in the country. But Josh cool. Kelly, man, he was fantastic. He had a ridiculous, couple of ridiculous one-handers. Also, that touched one of the touchdowns he had where he's spinning out of tackles as well. He showed impressive stuff after the catch. I thought Kyle Williams was fantastic. Those two receivers accounted for seventy nine percent of Washington State's passing game in this game. They were fantastic, and Oregon State's run game was really good. The problem was 
Oregon State fell behind, and they were down by 21 in the third quarter. They couldn't run the ball as much anymore, and DJ Uyunglele didn't play well in this game. He had a 46% completion rate, 53% adjusted completion rate. Both of those are well below what you want to see from him. Oregon State, though, like I mentioned, the, the run game is important for them. They averaged 7.1 yards per carry, but the key to Washington State winning this game, in my opinion, was the fact that that offense for Washington State was so explosive, was putting up points immediately Oregon State couldn't, you know, go to their bread and butter on offense, which is pounding the rock. They couldn't do it anymore. And all of a sudden, it turned into a game between Cam Ward and DJ Uyunglele. And that's a battle I'd take Cam Ward 10 times out of 10, man. So, yeah. fantastic, fantastic game from the Washington State offense. Oregon State, I will say, mounted a furious comeback at the end. They scored 21 points. Uh, basically in the fourth quarter just to get that game to to where it was but it was too little too late man because Washington State already put up 38 points on this team so really good time really good showing by I think both teams honestly really good showing um both programs showed that they deserve to remain power five programs now we'll see what happens to them uh in the coming months uh of what they do eventually because like we mentioned pack two championship these are the only two teams left in the Pac-12 conference after this season. Maybe they join with the Mountain West. Maybe they, they get something else. But uh, these are two really good programs. Both of them are still ranked heading into this week. Uh, so they deserve to be in a, in a Power 5 conference, man. And I think both of them proved in this game that they are very, very worthy of that distinction. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I just think Oregon State's problem is they have to win a certain way. We've talked about yeah. several teams over the last couple weeks like this, and Oregon State's no different. Um Uyaglale showed out in the first game, but the last three weeks it's really it's looked the same as as you saw on Saturday. I believe what is it a sixty point two passing grade over the last three weeks and an adjusted completion of only fifty five point six percent. That's the fifth worst in the nation. Um, and it's weird because I think in that span he's only got one turnover worthy play. He's just so scattershot that the defense can't even catch the ball. Yeah. Um, the the accuracy. The footwork, it, it, it all it's all over the place, it is. And and they they have to win games by hiding him. And any team that has to win games by hiding your quarterback, it gets it gets ugly, especially you mentioned they fell behind. This is a team that can't fall behind. Yeah. They just can't. They cannot drop back and throw the football. They want to run it down your throat. And, and like you said, they ran it well in this game, but that's also because they continued to run the ball, even down twenty one points early in the fourth quarter, continue to hand it to Martinez and Fenwick it's it's did it get them back in the game sticking to their identity it got them back in it but eventually that stark of a quarterback difference shows especially mm -hmm. when you're behind you know it, it just doesn't it's it's a major problem right now uh you you could argue Uyagalale as maybe even a bottom three quarterback in in the Pac-12 right now it it just it's just the accuracy is such an issue. They just have a problem completing passes, especially in the drop back game. Play action's a little better when he gets time and he can set his feet and see the field off the play action because you know teams are going to step up so hard on it. But it, it's a problem. It's if they fall behind this this next game will be interesting because Utah's not high flying like that. It should be more actually this next game against Utah should be more Oregon State style. Yeah. And should they should be in the game longer than they were in this one. Um they they just they can't fall behind these high flying teams like this. Because uh, they just have they don't have much comeback in them. I mean their idea of coming back was well we're just gonna continue to do what we do and hand the ball off. And it almost worked against Washington State, but that's you know, I'd I'd be curious to see we've seen it with Oregon or sorry with Utah already. You fall behind Utah you kind of dead in the water and and i it's it's a it's a dangerous dangerous thing that they've got going when they fall behind in games that they don't really have an answer to come back yeah Absolutely. That Utah game, I'm really interested in because we mentioned that UCLA game that Utah played in. They shut down the run game, and then it would turn into Dante Moore versus Utah. And I think uh, Dante Moore is a very, very talented quarterback, man. He still struggled in that game. So, DJ, it's going to be an interesting matchup that we're going to talk about uh, in our Wednesday episode. The one game that we didn't bring up uh, in our review that we did in our preview was, of course, my Penn State and the Lions, 31-0. Shutout victory over Iowa. Just want to put that in there. Penn State's defense looks fantastic. But then again, it was Iowa's offense. So, we'll see. But but uh, yeah, man, this is a really great review episode. And man, we have a really great preview episode coming up because not, listen, it may, we might not get a weekend like this past weekend, 
But we're going to get some really great weekends, including this one, Dalton. I believe there are four ranked games that we're going to get to uh, in our preview episode, and that's not even including USC Colorado, man, which should be a, a really, really fun one to talk about too. So listen, maybe not as good as week four, but week five is still a very, very awesome week of college football. Yeah, Max. I mean, there's still good matchups all over the place. I mean, the two I'm actually looking at, and we'll get to them, are Duke and Notre Dame, yep. especially. How does Notre Dame recover on the road in what's probably the biggest game in Duke football history? Yeah. Considering the circumstances, they're both ranked. Uh, Notre Dame coming off the loss. Duke's got all the momentum right now. And I think Kansas and Texas mm-hmm. is an interesting one. Kansas just beat up BYU pretty good, and BYU is still a solid team. And Texas, uh, we've seen they're really, really good, but they're not perfect. And, and they still they still have some kinks to work out, I think. And Kansas it can be a dangerous team offensively with their speed and the way they can get east and west. I'm very curious to see how that game goes, if we get a shootout, if Kansas is physical enough. Because the idea, you know, against BYU is expected that they would give up a lot of rush yards. I think they held BYU, I almost want to say, like one rushing yard. Or it was some insanely low number where BYU just didn't run the ball on on them at all. And you figured that was the advantage. So if Kansas all all of a sudden can stop the run, you've got a really dangerous team on your hands against Texas. That, That game is not a freebie by any means. It's not the same old Kansas. Yeah, absolutely not. You mentioned it. Yeah, you've got Utah, Oregon State on Friday night. That's that's a ranked game. You got USC, Colorado, Florida, Kentucky. I don't think we'll be able to get to it in our preview episode. But that's a really, really interesting game that I'm looking forward to. Kentucky's playing really well right now, uh, so that's a game I like. Kansas, Texas. You mentioned LSU, Ole Miss. That should be another great game. I'm excited for that one. Notre Dame, Duke is the biggest game you mentioned in Duke football history. First time ever that Duke is hosting college game day, which is pretty awesome. I believe there's only a few Power 5 programs left that haven't hosted game day, one of them unfortunately being my Syracuse Orange. Uh, but yeah, Duke, really awesome to see Duke finally get college game day this week. And then, yeah, man, I mean, it should be an awesome, awesome weekend of college football, man. So I am super pumped to talk to you on Wednesday about that. So make sure you guys stay tuned for our Wednesday episode, previewing the biggest games of week five. But that's what we got for our review episode for, for producer Eli back there, for Dalton Wasserman. I'm Max Chavik, and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys next time.